0: hello and welcome to man on the Clapham omnibus sport review today i'm going to do a cricket state of the union entitled road to 2021 by the hundred at the moment english cricket is in a pretty good place but the focus of most hardcore cricket fans in england is the run up to the 2021 ashes down in australia For an outsider, this would be quite strange, thinking that there is a T20 World Cup coming up at the end of the year, and yet England cricket fans are already focusing on the 2021 Ashes, which is months and months and years away. Which really begs the key question of why does the away Ashes take prevalence over a World Cup? in some ways counterintuitively the fact that england have been relatively successful in winning the t20 world cup in 2010 in the west indies and reaching the final in 2016 again in india in some ways the relative lack of importance and scarcity of t20 matches means winning is largely seen as a i guess a serendipitous happenstance you know for example you know it's underlined by ben stokes becoming an effective death bowler up until you know the final over of the final you know with in 2010 you had a opening partnership of uh, craig Keysweater and michael lum you know real bedrock of the success of, of the england team in the tournament but it was something that was last minute and thrown together So, this mixture of unheralded players, you know, Lum, you know, Michael Vardy, coupled with the lack of narrative, because the T20 World Cup is played every two years, and because you've really got a situation where you have the, you know, you have one or two or three match series for T20 games, and they're either tacked on to the end of a test and one day tour or the beginning. So rarely do you see the full strength lineup. It's usually an opportunity to rest players or to bring in new players to see how they can do in, you know, the T20. as a sort of gateway to international cricket. Hmm. And as a result because it's only every 2 years, you, there's never a sense that one team could dominate. And so you don't have the narrative build-up that you had for England, you know, coming up to last summer's World Cup, where for you know three or four years they've put together the team, the coaching structure, the style of play, you know, that was really backed up with their success in you know bilateral series. But you don't get that in the T twenty World Cup to the same degree. So as a result, it doesn't capture the popular imagination in the build-up. Whereby the ashes with its you know games played through the night in british time is entirely dependent on its narrative its historical scarcity and the generational quality of an england victory in terms of being career defining for the players in the 86 87 ashes or as a milestone on the way to the top in the way that the t20 that the 2010 2011 ashes team as an example Which really leads on to a further question that you know really is relevant now that we've had the you know, maiden fifty over World Cup win. Why didn't that T Twenty World Cup success lead to increased interest in the game? In some ways, you could argue that it was behind a pay you know behind a paywall, and where when England have been successful, it's been when the tournament in faraway locations, India, the West Indies, Caribbean it's unfortunate timing. The two thousand and ten final clashed with an upset cup win for Birmingham City against Arsenal. So it didn't have its own individual place in the sporting calendar in a way that I mean even to an extent the the World Cup last summer. You know, it was competing with the British Grand Prix, it was competing with Wimbledon. It's very rare that cricket seems to have the luck of having finals played in standalone moments and it's in some ways a failure of the you know ICC in terms of organizing it i suppose the argument would be that you can't schedule an ICC tournament final on the off chance that england get there and so that it doesn't you know match up with a premier league game or wimbledon or the british grand prix or, you know various other you know sporting events because england as a country in britain is an overtly sporting nation. There is always going to be something on somewhere. It's very rare, especially in the summer, for you to have a set period of space in the calendar for a cricket only as such. And because with the ICC you're dealing with the time zones because you have huge support in Asia, you have Australia, New Zealand, there is no perfect schedule that is going to allow the most amount of viewers at the right time as such. Which really leads on to the point that in these two instances, both of these tournaments took place out of season in winter. Therefore, it doesn't lead to an immediate participation bounce. In other words, kids weren't going to watch that final and then run outside into garden and start reenacting. It was cold, wet, miserable, late afternoon, in the dark. You, you don't have that option. It's not like you could then next weekend go down to your local cricket club. Because you're still virtually barely at the beginning of Nets in that regards. Which isn't quite the same thing and doesn't quite capture the same imagination as putting on your whites and going out there onto the field and actually playing the game. And in many ways you could argue that there was a lack of joined up thinking In that the ECB wasn't able to capitalise. And in some ways it's because really out in the Caribbean, out in India, England weren't particularly expected to either win the tournament or to get to the final. And this is one of the the interesting points is that actually England having success in T20 internationally, the T20 blast, the domestic tournament... ...isn't dependent on the success of the England national team. And for me, it's one of its underrated selling points. I mean, part of the reason why, in some ways, international T20 hasn't quite taken off in this country... ...is that when we did host it, we didn't play particularly well. There's a famous loss to Holland... ...at Lords, And for me the blast it's predicated on local rivalries, you know, Somerset, Gloucester, Surrey, Middlesex, Lancashire, Yorkshire? And one of the questions it sort of begs on with regards to the Hundred, the new tournament that's starting this summer, is will that supersede it? So will the scale in terms of, you know, that these games that the Hundred tournament is all based at international test arenas. And it's going to be populated with superstar players. And in some ways the strap line really will be that every game counts because it's quite a short, truncated tournament. And this is where the awkwardness of scheduling cricket, especially in England, we don't have the advantages that let's say, Australia, New Zealand and you know the Asian subcontinent countries have in terms of having large, long summers that allow you. In other words, we've, take the IPL. They can do that right at the back end of their summer. So it, you still have time for the Ranji Trophy. You still have 50 overs. You can still play all the international test cricket one day, T20s. And you've still got room for a standalone tournament at the back end of the summer without that having any kind of impact in terms of the weather and in terms of the attendance, whereby if you were to try and replicate the same thing in this country and have the the blast or the 100 in September, October, the weather's going to be cold, it's miserable, there's going to be rain outs, it becomes that much more difficult. You're trying to really... Your prime cricket months in this country are May, June, July, August... And by the time you get to mid-August, you've already got the start of the Premier League, which cuts into it. Even in May, you have you know, the Cup Final, the Champions League Final, the back end of the Premier League season. If there is a title race, which now is, from first couple of weeks in May, is now getting dangerously close into late May. You've got the Champions League Final for the first time was played in June rather than May. So the one element that the 100 will have is that you'll be playing this tournament while test matches and one day internationals are going ahead. So you're not going to have the England players, the front line England players participating on a game by game basis. And in some ways this is one of the issues that the fans, already you're going to have a situation where you have all of these teams that are brand new. So there's no... Historical basis to them, and I mean that was one of the interesting points was that the um, team based at you know Surrey's ground, the Oval, wanted to have Oval in the title name, so in effect to try and link it with, you know, the ground itself and with you know Surrey's magnificent you know history as a county, and this was one of the difficulties in putting a franchise league. In this country, is that in some ways you had to they had to be generic and geographically specific enough, but at some point not feel like it's just Yorkshire with a different name, you know, attached onto the front. So you're trying to really boost interest away from the you know Yorkshire or the you know, the county hardcore. And I think one of the unintended consequences is, is that it might be a struggle for the casual fans to relate if, let's say, Ben Stokes isn't playing on a regular basis. If there's no team that you would naturally affiliate yourself with. And let's say if England struggle in the T20 World Cup, that might also have a, you know unintended consequence of not feeling as confident going into the tournament. Well, let's say if England win fantastic happy days that's then something that you can then build on as a precursor to the tournament i think if you compare it let's say with the the big bash which has this wonderful advantage of acting as a showcase circuit for the next generation of young australian talent so in other words you see this kid you know first break into the team let's say as a lower middle order batsman and then they start to succeed, so they get pushed up the order and they'll then find themselves, you know, for example, the final of this year's Big Bash ended up with a young Australian batsman who'd idolised Steve Smith. Who'd watched Steve Smith bat the uh, Sydney Sixers to you know a Big Bash title when he was 14 and now he was in the final batting with Steve Smith to, to win Sydney Sixers another Big Bash whereby The Hundred, with its intrinsic need for credibility and star attractions, therefore limits the scope and potential for young and unheralded talent to make an impact on the wider stage. So you're not going to have that strong, overarching narrative of seeing a next generation of England stars. You might see a couple, but your casual fan isn't going to know these people. And, and this is one of the issues that you're going to have with the sort of split schedule. You're only going to have a handful of games on the BBC. The rest are going to be on Sky. So there's go- I think there's going to be some element of are you going to be able to get people who are watching the games on BBC to then find a way of, of getting them to watch the remainder of the games on Sky? which is where you're going to build up the sort of knowledge level that you'd need to then be able to say, oh, okay, I know this young kid is just now breaking through. This guy could be the next, you know, Ben Stokes, the next Moe and Ali, the next Joffre Archer. I mean, there is going to be that element that you're not necessarily going to see Ben Stokes batting with the next Ben Stokes, because with the limited amount of teams, with the limited amount of space, there isn't going to be huge amounts of unheralded talent so really as a result the hundred is effectively positioning itself as a festival of cricket it's going to rely on the high level of quality on display that's what's going to capture people's imagination it's seeing a very good cricket teams you know all battling against each other all with you know different qualities but at the same time a high level of talent. You know, that's what the ECB is banking on. Is that this is going to, you know, capture the imagination of the casual cricket fan and the reluctant traditionalist cricket fan. That maybe they might not agree with the idea of the hundred, but once they see the actual games, once they see the fantastic cricket on display, that they'll watch in spite of their, you know, frustrations or their disagreements with the the principles behind it. Which has a corollary, really, because you've only got a handful of games on national television, in some ways you're relying on the vagarities of the British summer and the impacts on the wickets. So, in other words, if it's hot and dry summer, that's going to benefit the batsmen, so you might have a high scoring tournament. Or you might, if it's wet and mild, you're going to have a situation where the seam bowlers and some of the spinners will then have the, the advantage. So how will this impact on the wickets that are prepared? Are they essentially going to say, well, we want lots of tight games, which is tends to be lower scoring. Or do we actually want to see in these 100 balls someone going for 200, 250? At which point you're then more likely to have you know blowouts. And I think one of the things that hasn't really been mentioned as much as it should have been is that this is a whole new teams, new teammates. And a brand new format of the game. And the players are themselves not going to have significant practice time. So, although I suppose the outsider would say, oh, it's only 20 balls less. That's still going to be a difference in terms of, you know, do you just swing from ball one? Do you give yourself three or four balls to get in? Because you just have less and less leeway. And that's especially if you're then chasing a big total because the wickets are flat. It's... There's a huge amount of pressure now being really attached to the players and there's so many things that to an extent are really out of the ECB's hands to that extent. So if literally the first two weeks of it are slightly underwhelming because of you know, inclement weather or because the players are simply just getting used to playing with each other and also then getting to grips with the new format, that's where the I problems potentially lie. In other words, if let's say the first two or three games are on national television are blowouts, that's then really, and you've got you're going to have a national media that in some ways is going to be fairly disinclined to support it. So you're going to have your tr- cr- you know, your traditional cricket correspondents who are you know from what I've read not particularly jazzed by it. And then you're also going to have your you know, high-profile cricket fans in the media who are likely to pile on to this. And you're going to have the, you know, what I would call, part-time cricket writers. So people that maybe cover the football beat, but on occasion write articles. Once that narrative gets set in terms of this has not been a complete success, that can then really snowball. So there are significant worries that you know, the 100 faces. And one of the, I think, most important elements is that it won't have the, the localism that underpins domestic T20 cricket in this country. You know, because the tournament has a longer duration, and because of the expanse of counties across the country, it, it allows for poor seasons, you know, inclement weather. And variable talent levels. Because you still will love Somerset, you will still love Gloucester, you will love Durham. And as a result, you just go because it's you know, T twenty cricket is fun. You go after work, you can have a few beers, you can take the family. And you it's always a sense there'll be there's always next year. And that's you know, bred and nurtured over generations. Whereby the hundred doesn't have necessarily that doesn't have that well of you know support and and love. So one of the issues that the hundred has that it really does have to establish itself within years one or two because if it isn't working, if it doesn't have the impact that the E C B hope it does, because of its colossal cost and the damage it does to the. Cricket calendar, the damage it does to the T Twenty blast. You do if it fails, you would almost certainly have to kill it. You wouldn't be able to, you know, downsize it. You wouldn't be able to cut it, because that would be such a huge negative, and it's such a cost drain because of the amount of money you're spending in terms of the auctions, in terms of the, you know, getting high class foreign players to come in. It either works or it doesn't. There's no middle ground where you could downsize it, for instance. And I think why the the point of why you have the hundred, why it's been needed to be invented, and in this slightly different format that is, you know, more television friendly, is that the divides and issues that has befallen English cricket, cricket really stems from a wider decline in its prominence in the british cultural psyche you know, compare and contrast to india now india is a cricket hotbed but one of the things that i find so amazing is that if you were to ask the casual sports fan indian cricket they would immediately talk about the IPL they would talk about you know the huge amount of 50 over cricket that is played internationally for India in comparison with let's say England and to a lesser extent Australia and yet both of these formats weren't particularly successful in India when they were first invented and really the moments that India embraced 50 over cricket and the moment where they embraced T20 cricket, really comes from them winning the World Cup. So in 1983, at Lords, they were massive underdogs against West Indies, and they won. And so that really led to a huge explosion in popularity, domestically and internationally. They started playing more, you know, 50 over cricket. They saw the Advantages in terms of getting huge attendances, in terms of getting the Indian diaspora interested, having these you know tournaments in Sharjah against Pakistan that really became legendary. You know, six or seven game series that you know, I suppose ape in some ways the you know the excitement that can come up from a World Series. So in other words, if it's three all going into game seven, winner takes all, whereby. Test cricket before 1983 was really seen as a summit because of it was a slower, it had more tactics, you had to you had lots of time and it in some ways that form of cricket in the 70s and 60s in some ways matched India where India was culturally and really what 1983 and to a greater extent winning the T twenty the inaugural T twenty World Cup in two thousand and seven was that it was showing the new India a more powerful, more assertive, a more a faster pace of life and different cultural changes. You know, when you when you think about two thousand and seven, it was hosted in South Africa and India didn't particularly take it seriously. So they did, you know, venerate Test cricket but 50 over game was for them, you know, the height of sophistication in terms of needing the you know, skills to bat for long periods of time, you know, the explosiveness, but also the tactical sense and, you know, building a team. Whereby T20 cricket was seen as a you know, a knockabout, something that wasn't taken particularly seriously, where you just, you know, you, you, t- you gave it a bit of a whack and that was it really. And so they weren't particularly taking much of a first team, they were just really a bit of a scratch outfit, and yet by the time they got to the final against Pakistan, and beating Pakistan in this final, and the country really then just jumped on it, and they then create in terms of, you know, forming the IPL, they did have a domestic T20 tournament, but it it was really just thrown together it was well we'll just get you know some teams in the big cities big grounds it was really an afterthought and it's at which point the ipl with its mixture of you know celebrity owners, with its primetime television with the sense that that it could be marketed in in a worldwide sense it wasn't just going to be something that cricket tragics were going to watch that it was something that could literally, you know, get young people, could get families, something that could really show the rest of the world just how powerful India is in cricket, and just how much they could throw their weight around in terms of they could get the best players, they could then use that in a way to really sell, you know, as a brand their individual players, you know, Sachin, Virat, all across the world, and so. This, 83 and 2007, what it means is that cricket has become aligned with the destiny of the nation, economically and culturally. So, the question for English cricket fans is, has this cultural alignment dissipated permanently? You know, Can it be retrieved and strengthened in the coming decades for the next generation of cricket fans? For me one of the best examples of this sort of cultural alignment is um Alfred Hitchcock the legendary direct, film director's use of uh, test cricket in the film the 1938 film the lady vanishes. So he used some of the real life events of the 1938 Ashes specifically the Old Trafford test match. So the way how it's used is that there's um Two characters. So it's based not to give you the ins and outs of the entire film, but effectively it starts in a uh, European country in made up in Eastern Europe near Italy. Yeah, you know, that's what the intimation is. And you have two British travellers trying desperately to get back into. There's been a an avalanche, and the train's been stopped, and they're trying desperately to get back to Manchester for the Ashes Test match between England and Australia. You know they're desperate to find out the score. And my point would be is that that example was used so th- with the idea that the audience would fully understand these two gentlemen's desperation to find out what the cricket score is. That everyone would n- automatically understand what they were talking about. And my point is, is that if you were to do a contemporary film, would you use that example? And would that be universally understood? So... Where Indian, as I've said, where Indian cricket really encapsulates the rise of, of a new India, I suppose in some ways the maladies and issues of English cricket really frame the fractures in our society. You know, we're riven by cuts, a decline in public sports facilities and the quality. You know, it's an increasingly, in some ways, unequal society. In some ways, you know, the England cricket team is now reliant on the public schools pathway. And the British diaspora for players you've had huge declines in the playing of the game in state schools in the black community. you know the amateur game is increasingly older and more reliant on the British Asian community, which in of itself is vastly underrepresented in the professional game in the boardroom, and on the playing field. You know the talent pathway is there, but it's still tentative at best. You've had issues that Moen Ali has brought up in when he's taken a break from Test cricket feeling that he was under huge amounts of pressure, that when things did go wrong he seemed he felt that he had an exponentially large percent of the blame. You've had problems with, you know, Adel Rashid in you know having issues with his coach at Yorkshire and with the demands that he has to play four-day cricket, you know, in the county championship for his team Yorkshire. So that he could then get into the test team and all of the issues surrounding that, and the question marks of, you know, there was one game where he said he wasn't able to play because he didn't feel in the right mental state, and the criticism he had from his captain and from the coach. There's still a feeling of tentativeness about, you know, British Asians having success in the county championship and then rising to the level or playing as being regulars for the England cricket team. You know we have, you know, fantastic role models in Mohan Ali, in Adil Rashid, but it still doesn't feel particularly strong. It does feel as if like those players are exceptions rather than the norm. I mean if you then factor in, let's say, the difficulties faced by Jofra Archer in assimilating to the England team. It shows really, in some ways, the preponderance and homogeneity of the public school academy system in the development of elite English qualified professional cricketers. You know, Jofra Archer grew up in the West Indies. His father is English, and he's you know, grew up. It was born and grew up in Barbados, and eventually came over to play for Sussex and came to prominence through the IPL, through the Big Bash, as opposed to playing for, let's say, the England under-19s or playing through the full academy system. So his viewpoint and his experiences are different from the average England cricketer that basically might go to a public school, through the university system, or is taken into an academy at 8, 9, 10 and really schooled through that, you know, precise methodology. And so as a result, there have been, you know, there's been constant underpinnings of that. you know, maybe he wasn't giving enough effort in terms of his batting in the nets and in test matches, or that he wasn't giving 100%. And yet, really, when you actually look at the numbers in of themselves, he was bowling a huge amount. He had played, you know, a huge amount of test matches he played in the World Cup really hadn't had a, uh, an extended break and was bowling more than everybody else, and yet there was still this underlying sense that he could give more, that he wasn't doing enough. And yet, now it turns out that actually he'd been really playing through a you know quite a serious elbow injury that had been exacerbated by overuse. And yet, throughout all of this sort of low level criticism. The fact that he's been overplayed is also really shows you the need for role models. That there's been that's contributed to this over expectation and overuse of a generational talent. You know that the need to play him in all three formats of the game, and that to put so much pressure and so much workload so early in his international career. And in some ways, it really is reveals the inability of the ECB and cricket in general in this country to to sell the stars they already have. That Jofra was seen as so different, when really, you know, all he is 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 a fast bowler. Yes, he comes from a Afro Caribbean background, but that shouldn't necessarily make him that much of a unique talent. When you've had, you know, Raheem Sterling, who was. You know, born in Kingston, Jamaica, playing for England for an extended period of time. And yet for having a black Afro-Caribbean cricketer for England is seen as this massive deal. But it's not all doom and gloom. You know, the county structure, which is always considered in some way, shape or form to be in peril. You know, it's thrown up in the last few years thrilling title races and a number of great sides you know probably best encapsulated by Surrey and Essex who are benefiting from successful academies and canny colpack signings that really marry the best elements of young english talent learning from experienced ex international stars you know for example at surrey you've got the fast bowler morning morkel and at essex you have the spin bowler simon Harmer. and they've greatly improved the standard of the county championship and also improve the level of the young players and their experiences. You know, they are learning, they're seeing in the nets, they are seeing in terms of preparation. And they're also in terms of the sort of talent they are facing before they then would step up to international level. And really what you have with, with Brexit, finally, at, you know, the advent of Brexit, the Coal plaque loophole is closed. Now, what you've had is is that you've had a, primarily South Africans, although there are a handful of West Indians, West Indies players who have used this loophole. So what they've done is they've given up on their international career in South Africa because South Africa has a trading relationship with the EU. They've then been able to sign as effectively domestic players, as opposed to the, as opposed, being counted as one of the one international players that you're allowed. So, effectively, every single county is allowed one overseas player. However, with the Colpac ruling, you could effectively have a Indian batsman, but you could then have three South African fast bowlers, as long as they had agreed never to play for South Africa, again, at international level. And with the decline of the RAND and the lack of money in South African domestic cricket, signing a three-year contract in the county championship for vastly larger amounts of money appealed, especially if you were in your early 30s and you'd had a long international career anyway, or if you were on the fringes and really the certainty in the money was clearly a, an opportunity a lot of players weren't able to turn down. So for the you know, authorities and for the PCA, the Professional Cricketers Association, the union, To come up with the idea for a sensible compromise, allowing for two overseas players, effectively you're safeguarding the standards of the county championship as the best in the world. You're giving opportunities to young talent to break through, and as a fringe benefit, it's allowing South Africa to be able to keep more of their, you know, young talent and their medium, you know, their depth players, playing for the national team, which should strengthen South Africa. That to me seems to be a fantastic compromise in the best of both worlds. But even with these kind of compromises, there are still deep uncertainties within the English game. And it's really most notably within how to schedule now four distinct formats of the game. Trying to dis- safeguard player health as we've seen with the overuse and injuries that Arch has suffered and you know, Mark Wood. And also the need for distinct windows for focusing on format-specific skills. What that means is that basically in the previous generations, you had county championship, which was your bread and butter. That's how you made money. And then on a Sunday, you would have the 50-over tournament. Where, yeah, you might slog it a bit more. But what you now have is you have the 100. You have... T20, you have 50 over and you have the four day game. And all you require different skills. The sort of skills you need to succeed at T20 cricket, you know, range hitting, you know, the work that you need to do on fielding relays, you know, the sort of bowling lengths you have to do are just so different. You can't really play, let's say, a four day game during the week and then come Friday night play T20. Yes, you can, but you're not going to get the best out of those players because they need periods of time where they can just focus on the skills they need to be successful at the 50 over game, the T20 game, now the 100 and then still have and still be able to, you know, play the four-day games in a reasonable window. What you're getting now is increasingly you're having the county championship pushed out to the margins, you know, April, May and then you're know, trying to rattle off fixtures in September and October. The thing is is that it can work some years, but this year the when it came down to the final you know, round of games where the title was on the line, the games were rained out because really if you're tr- expecting four beautiful days across the country in late September, it's unlikely, and you don't want a great country championship season to end with the Day four, the final day of the season, and literally one of the, on one of these days, literally the entire country was rained out. And so with the 100 in its prime summer slot, this is the first time the ECB has sanctioned a tournament that focuses on geographic city franchises rather than the counties as a whole. It, it's a precedent. And it's one that in time could fatally undermine having 18 first-class counties. And it's, you know, the inevitable result of that would really be relegating the T20 Blast to an also-ran. also, also ran, uh, a, Simply a minor league, a provincial starter to the main course led by the City 100 franchises. So, I mean, part of the element is that all of the 100 franchises have one slot available to pick a domestic player so the idea being is is that they would then cherry pick the players who've done well in the blast who would then jump up make some good money in the hundred which really it does it creates the element that you have in baseball of going to the big leagues and for me this would be a profound error and it's really failing to truly understand cricket's cultural appeal in this country you know, by having a high-profile city-based franchise, doesn't mitigate the huge decline in inner-city facilities and cricket take-up. You know, the classic example is that the nineteen ninety-two World Cup finalist England cricket team could have two players from the same South London comprehensive it would now be little more than a pipe dream. You know, it's more likely that the next England World Cup winning team having twice or three times as many players f- come from Whitgift Public School than the rest of the country's entire comprehensive schools put together. And conversely, the cricketing authorities you know, can't—they cannot simply assume that a managed decline of the county game in search of riches and elite pathway offered by the Indian and Australian domestic systems. You know, these systems are reliant on you know the size and scales of the countries with states and regional centres. So in other words, Australia, the, the, the big bash was quite straightforward. You have a team from Hobart. You have a couple of teams in Brisbane, a couple of teams in Sydney. You have Adelaide, you have Perth. And so the, the whole of the country really can be effectively covered in eight teams. Whereby, and the same thing as you have you know, the, you know, the state centres in India, so you have you know, New Delhi, Mumbai, whereby in this country it doesn't quite work that way. And so trying to replicate this in England and Wales for me would be, you know, risk alienating more provincial and rural areas of England that the, the existing county system serves so well. Yes, they're not as financially profitable and they don't look so good on a spreadsheet, but they are the bedrock of the game and why it is so popular. I mean, so many people criticise The Blast, and yet last year a million people went to it. And as we've seen with the precipitous decline in Afro-Caribbean and Black participation in the game, both professionally and at the amateur level, assuming that these communities and cricket infrastructure would remain and that these people would remain enthralled with the game is a dangerous gamble the point is is that you have the situation where in the 80s and 90s and there was still huge participation in state schools and you had afro-caribbean players in the england team and all throughout the county system and yet, within less than a generation, that's really just disappeared. And it's now a real minority. And so once, it, it can take a generation to, to lose it. But it will take an absolute king's ransom to rebuild it, if you lose it. And this is money that the government and really the ECB just don't have. So in conclusion, there are plenty of opportunities for English cricket. You no, know, we're still waiting the full impact and dividend from the World Cup victory last summer. And for all of the and for all of the concern regarding the hundred, you know, with the question marks that we've outlined, you know, over whether the format will work and whether the and the perspective damage to the county structure, it's still a high class set of domestic and international stars playing cricket to a national audience in prime time. While it cannot single-handedly restore the damage to the game that the paywall blackout from the 2005 Ashes has caused it, it's at least an acceptance that the game needs a wider audience to thrive. Now, considering the viewing figures for the final for the World Cup final last summer, there is a clearly a huge scope for a mass audience for cricket. You know, the One Day sides, in particular with Owen Morgan as captain, really represent English cricket at its best, in its best light. And it you know, combining a multicultural, multi-ethnic squad of players, proud to wear the three lines on their chest, and having pushed the boundaries of the game with consistent excellence. You know, you've had the rise of English players, both established internationals and breakthrough players, succeeding in the Big Bash and the IPL, which is the real cream of the you know domestic T Twenty leagues. You know, a great deal of credit you know is is owed to Trevor Bayliss and Paul Farbrace for building the structure that allowed you know Morgan's undoubted genius to flourish. I think one of the points that we you need to make is is that what we don't want is for this England 2019 World Cup team to be a one-off just a random set of occurrences that allowed you to have this, you know, multicultural team. You know, I said earlier in the podcast about the worries of, you know, the cricket pathways being, you know, mainly public schools universities academies yeah there's no guarantee that you know that the 2019 won't just be end up becoming a one off in some ways a mirage it, it's not guaranteed that you will always have you know multicultural teams if you don't you know make more effort to have you know inner city children taking up the game and to really work, that you're not so reliant on the English diaspora for players, and that it becomes far less, you know, class orientated. You know, while inevitably, you know, the genius of, you know, Baylis and Farbrys. At one day, it was always, I suppose, in some ways, inevitably that it was going to be less successful at test level, and with Chris Silverwood now ascending to the job. One of the great things about it was is that he got the job by winning promotion to Division One and then the County Championship with Essex. You know they don't play in an international ground, and this really is a fill up that there's the coaching standard in the domestic game are good enough to produce international quality coaches, and it's really disproving the maxim that only you know foreign international coaches were the only realistic option available. And I think it's important, you know, to note that, you know, while this the majority of this podcast is really focused on the men's team, that you've got the England women's national team. And at the moment they're in a a difficult place in the sense that they are still one of the, the top three, top four, I'd say even probably second best team in the world. But at the moment, you're they're facing such a dominant Australian team, and that the infrastructure with the you know women's big bash is is really light years in advance in terms of the pit the amount of players they are getting taking up the game and the facilities. And the great news is is that that with the beating that the. English girls took in the last ashes, that their changes needed to be made and the infrastructure improved. So that they would be able to compete at test level and at 50 over and T20 level. And one of the things that I'm most looking forward to with the advent of the 100 is to see how that will, whether that will improve it, whether that will narrow the gap with the Australians. And, you know, we've now got a new batch of talent coming through. And with the upcoming T20 World Cup in Australia, it'd be fantastic to see whether the gap has been narrowed. I mean, if you look at the tri-series with India, Australia and England that's just been held as a precursor to the T20 World Cup, England were probably unlucky to have lost out on the final by net run rate. Yeah, you know, they've beaten Australia in Australia. And there ha- there's a whole new generation of players coming through, so there's there's lots to be positive about, but it's still, you know, the gap in infrastructure does have to be, does have to be filled as soon as possible. I mean, looking at the Test team, one of the things I've been most really impressed with, um, Chris Silverwood, in how quickly they've established a more stable batting lineup, and philosophy. You've now had a situation where with the last series in South Africa where they won three one, that they were able to, you know, with the shoot with the virus that swept through the team with some of the injuries that they've had, you then had a a, a blooding of a fresh and exciting new generation of players. And these have been thrust into prominent roles. You've got, you know, Ollie Pope, Don Sibley, Zach Crawley you know, Don Best with regards to spinning and Sam Curran is an all rounder. And you've still got the, you know, experience of, you know, the evergreen, you know, Broad and Anderson, you have Joe Root, who I think is improving as a captain, and you've got now a, you know, a nurtured, you know, battery of fast bowlers led by, you know, Wood and Archer. There's so much to look forward to. And this just offers the hope that the English Test team will be participating in the inaugural World Test Championship final at Lourdes in the summer of 2021. And that will be a fantastic precursor towards before heading down under for the 2021-2022 Ashes series in Australia with a realistic hope of victory. Thank you for listening.